Uh, so if we haven't met, my name's Tony. Um, we're in Mark week two. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you, uh, not because it was the best sermon ever, but because it'll give you, we got runners. Uh, <laughs> someone is on that kid, I'm assuming. All right. <laughs> not because it was the best sermon ever, but it'll provide a little bit of context into week two where we're at today. So I would encourage you, if you can, uh, to take a listen. For those of you who weren't here last week, the quick update is something like this. There is a hope in Israel that's culminating in the emergence of this guy named John the Baptist who's preparing the way for God's people to realign their lives with God as his Messiah, his anointed one, the Christ, shows up on the scene. In the midst of this call for people to be baptized and repent, Jesus shows up. He is baptized himself. There's this pretty amazing moment of connection with the Father and affirmation. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit, to actually be tested on Satan's own turf in the wilderness. And it's all preparation for this moment in verse 14 where Mark kind of provides this broad introductory statement about what Jesus is about to do in his ministry. And this is what he writes. This is Mark 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I think often we read this verse and we sort of skip over those first few lines or those first few words. Now, after John was arrested. But this is actually really important for a few reasons. Okay, for the last little bit, John has literally led one of the most important revivals in the history of Israel over the last three or four hundred years. And then he's all of a sudden arrested. What's going on here? Well, People are longing for God to deal with Rome, right? Rome is oppressing Israel on their home turf. But if you're an average, everyday person, you're thinking, yes, best news ever. God is going to come. He's going to kick Rome off our back. But if you're benefiting from Roman rule, you might not like it. Maybe you've worked your way up into the authority and power structure, and now you're like, hey, you know, all the money I'm getting, all the privileges I'm getting, all the things I'm getting on the side because of Roman rule, those might go away. Now imagine you're the emperor or a king or a major official. And John is declaring, hey, God's anointed. This king is going to come on the streets. He's going to make this huge difference. Are you going to be excited about that? No. No. You're going to be wondering how that's going to affect, affect the authority, the power, the privilege that you have gained over time. Right? What happens? Those authorities put John in prison. And I think it would be wise to see this as a literary foreshadowing of what is actually going to happen to Jesus too. Right? This is the world that Jesus is entering. A world in which really powerful people arrest and often use violence to get their way, right? There's all these, con there's continuity between Jesus and John. You start to see these similarities. What is Jesus doing? He's preaching repentance. He's preaching some judgment, just like John did. They both call people to respond. They both call people to align their lines with the rule of God. 
John is preparing the way for Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, his message is really similar, but also slightly different. He says this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, you'll probably have noticed this phrase, kingdom of God, doesn't show up a ton in the Old Testament. It doesn't show up a ton in like the intertestamental period. So this is between exile or the last writings that we have in our Bible and the first century. There's not a lot of references to kingdom of God, but the concept is literally everywhere, right? God is establishing his reign and his rule over creation through humanity. Psalm 9-7, the Lord reigns forever. Psalm 99-1, the Lord reigns forever. Let the nations tremble. Why? Because there is a God in Israel, the God over all the earth. And because he is king, and his kingdom is meant not just to be in heaven, but on earth, taking shape in a people. In fact, this concept of the kingdom of God actually shows up, uh, although we kind of skip over it, in the very first pages of the Bible, in Genesis 1. On day six, same day as cows are made, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Then verse 27, so God created man, or human, Adam, in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now, if you're living in the ancient Near East, uh, you would sort of have certain assumptions about what this made to be made in the image of God. So ancient uh, Egyptian and Assyrian texts often describe the king as the image of God on earth, right? So the king is representing the interests of God on earth in his kingdom, right? He represents God like an ambassador of the kingdom on earth. And this is kind of what the author of Genesis is trying to create when he talks about man and woman being made in God's image, right? To be made in God's image is to call humanity God's kingdom representatives on earth. While other creatures are made according to their own kind, humans are made according to the image of God to bear his image in the world as his kingdom representatives on earth. Right, Genesis 1, big picture, God is commissioning humanity to oversee the worldwide spread of God's rule, his kingdom, throughout all of creation. Right, this is God's intended vocation for humankind. So this is kind of what we need to understand biblically as we enter into the first century, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Right, God is king. What that also means is that he has a kingdom. This is not simply an idea like God reigns. But the king is king of a people, right? That's sort of built into this idea of kingdom. Then the king also establishes practices of what it means to be faithful in that place. I mean, to understand this throughout history, right? You have a king. The king says, this is how we're going to do life. This is the good life. Then those people obey the king and live that way. Same with the kingdom of God. God is wanting to establish a people that do on earth as he directs in heaven. Make sense? But Jesus, he grew up in Nazareth. He knows what's going on in the first century. He knows that not everyone is doing on earth as it is supposed to be done in heaven. He knows there's a lack of alignment. So what does he do? He calls people to 
reorder their lives in terms of the king and his kingdom, right? To repent, to turn in total surrender to God, right? Believe the gospel or the good news that God's way is the best way and Jesus is there to lead the people into this way, to practice it, right? To embrace this central human calling to be in service of God within his kingdom as our deepest act of worship. Now Jesus, again, right, having grown up in Nazareth, he knows not everyone submits their lives to the king of the kingdom. He knows that for people to trust in God and embrace his reign in their lives, they will need to turn towards God and repent, right, to put God's kingdom at the center, not their own. But in the first century, and this developed in this intertestamental period, between exile and the writing of the New Testament, there became this real ethnocentric and nationalistic focus of the kingdom. What I mean by this is you have a Jewish state or Jews that are sort of saying, hey, you know what? When God's kingdom comes, what he's going to do is he's going to kick the Gentiles out. Our people, man, He's going to bless us, and those Gentiles, those Romans, he's going to kick them out. And you start to see this ethnocentric bent happening in this intertestamental period. You also start to see this nationalistic focus happening. It's about our nation against all the other nations, right? So you start to have these hopes commingled that are both ethnocentric and nationalistic happening in the first century. So when Jesus says kingdom of God, they have these certain assumptions in their mind about what this kingdom is going to be like. They assumed that their assumptions were identical to God's assumptions about this kingdom. And I think Jesus sees this, and he calls them to set aside their agendas and submit to his rule, to repent and believe the gospel, the good news of God's rule, not just in Israel, but the whole world not just of the nation of Israel, but all the nations. Right? This is the good news that Jesus is trying to declare as he's arriving on the scene. There's not a lot more we could say here about the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There are literally libraries with scholarly debate about what exactly is going on here. I just want to emphasize two things. The first is this. This phrase, uh, the time is fulfilled, this word time, kairos, uh, simply refers to a decisive moment in time or history. Right? In English, we often think of fulfilled as like, I fulfilled my obligations. I did what I was supposed to do. That isn't really what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is, hey, there's this moment where we have been waiting for, and it's on the ground arriving now. Which is another way of saying that the kingdom which has come into history in a unique way, is with Jesus as the king of the kingdom setting foot, right, in this contested space of Israel where some people align their hearts and lives with the kingdom and some people don't. Right? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because Jesus, the king, is on the scene. It's also interesting when you sort of put this idea of the gospel into this mix of time and at hand, you kind of get this interesting thing of Jesus proclaiming the gospel, 
but he also was and is the gospel. Right? The good news. Why? Because he is at hand. And that is good news. The king is on the scene. Now, if we're going to dig just a bit deeper, and I realize like, I'm trying to get through some really complex topics, so hopefully I'm not losing you. I think if I did, I'll bring you back in in a minute. Okay. So just to go one layer deeper, uh, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom being at hand, I think this can be understood in three ways. First, it is at hand because Jesus is there. Right? He is the king of the kingdom and he's there, so he's at hand, he's close. But this word or phrase at hand in its original context is, I heard one scholar write, or read one scholar who wrote that at hand is kind of like that moment when you watch the sunrise and it's lighting up the sky, but it hasn't quite appeared over the mountain. You know, you're sitting out here and you're looking towards Salinas and the sun is just at the top of the mountains. You can see a lot of the light, but it hasn't arrived. That's what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right there, but the sun hasn't fully revealed itself. So when Jesus is saying this, he is both saying the kingdom is here because I'm here. And he's also saying it's here, but not quite fully arrived. There's also a third way that I think we often don't talk about, but I think is really clear. It's this. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand as people surrender their lives to God and the kingdom. Right? The king is there, but the kingdom is still not fully populated. Right? As people surrender their lives to the king, and to his kingdom perspectives and rule and practices. The kingdom is at hand. Which I think is important because of what happens next. As Jesus is declaring this truth, one day he's walking by the sea. Verses 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and follow him. Now, I think to understand what's going on here, we need to appreciate what does first century discipleship look like? before Jesus shows up on the scene. Okay, so to do this, we need to look at the Jewish educational system. So imagine, like in our public system, essentially, you sign up, you go, and you go through high school, right? Like, and if you get kicked out of a school, you get into another school. But everyone is required on some level to get through. That's not the Jewish educational system. The Jewish educational system is set up like this. You don't learn science, you don't learn history, you learn Bible, you learn Torah. And if you're really good at memorizing the Torah, you get passed on. If you don't, you go to, you become discipled in some sort of other practice or trade. And by the time you get through high school, like, I don't know, 2% of the people who started in kindergarten are still around, right? All of the best of the best make it to the end 
almost everyone else, me, most of you, are doing some other trade. And it's at this point, you are literally the best of the best of your age group. And at this point, you're like sort of an aspiring PhD student in our context, wanting to get into Harvard or Stanford. You put your best foot forward, you go up to a rabbi and you say, would you please let me follow you? Admit me into your discipleship system. And the truth is, almost all of them are rejected. It is only the best of the best of the best, right? The PhD student applying to Harvard to the best, you know, professor in his or her field. That is who gets to follow a rabbi. And there's this ancient proverb that says this, follow a rabbi, drink in his words, be covered in the dust of his feet. So imagine you're the rabbi and you're walking along in your little flip-flop sandal things and every step you take, a little dust flicks off the back of your sandal. You're wearing flip-flops in sand, you know, as you walk, it sort of kicks up on the back. What they're saying is, be covered in the dust of his feet, walk so close to the rabbi that the dust flicking off from his sandals ends up on your pants. Drink in his words. As he's walking, he's also talking. And you're supposed to be listening to everything he says so close that you're literally covered in the dust of his feet. This isn't the follow me of Twitter, where one person does stuff and the other person watches on the sidelines and is like, how cool. That's not what we're talking about here. Right? A disciple did what his rabbi did. This isn't just a mind transfer. This isn't just, I know what my rabbi know. I read his book. You do what your rabbi does. Essentially, you become your rabbi. Now let's turn to Jesus. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. I think there should be a picture in there. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is a 14-mile-long, 6-mile-wide, kidney-shaped lake or sea. Uh, you'll notice there's a little triangle up there, if you can see it. Uh, it's Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. In the first century, this is called the Rabbinic Triangle. Most of the rabbis that come out of Israel come out of this triangle. This is where the Pharisees are developing a ton of people. The best rabbis are coming out of the Rabbinic Triangle. Jesus is in Capernaum, on the coast, right there. He literally has people that are excellent candidates. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. You say Joshua 3, and they read the next chapter from memory. But Jesus doesn't wait for the best of the best to come to him. He's the only rabbi in the first century who calls disciples. And he doesn't just call the credentialed, those who passed their, you know, exam, graduated top of the class, aced the theology entrance exam, Bible memorization process, whatever. Rather, he walks by a lake and he calls four fishermen. A quick word about fishermen. Uh, to be a fisherman in the first century wasn't like a nine-to-five job. This was an identity. 
And the truth is, fishermen off the Sea of Galilee were competing in a large Mediterranean commercial fish market. And they were really successful. They would have their fish purchased in Alexandria, in Egypt, in Syria. So these are shrewd, successful business people. And Jesus decides, you know what? As Simon and Andrew, James and John are casting a net, he decides to call them. Now, net casting or fishing, basically you'd go out on the Sea of Galilee, you'd stand on the the boat, and the way I imagine this is sort of imagine a huge circular net with weights on the side, okay? Now imagine an enormous Frisbee throw. You sort of throw it out, and what it does is it sort of goes, 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 and then it lands on the water like a huge parachute, and then it sinks down in the circular form, and it traps fish underneath it. Kind of make sense? And then you dive into the water, grab the net, pull it to shore, and then you'd have your net hopefully full of fish. So this is what they're doing. Jesus is walking along the shore, and he sees these men throwing these massive frisbees, and he asks them, Will you follow me? Will you walk in the dust of my feet? Will you drink the words of my mouth? Would you align your lives with the kingdom of God? I love that Jesus doesn't actually call his first disciples at the synagogue or the temple. He walks on the rocky shore outside of Capernaum. He enters into the working world of boats and nets and labor. He enters the workplace, the place of Simon and Andrew and Peter and John's expertise. Notice, though, Jesus doesn't say, hey, believe in me. You notice that? He doesn't say, believe in me that I am the Messiah. Go about with your fishing. He says to them, follow me. So on one level, he is working within the current rabbinical system of how you develop rabbis, right? He's calling them, saying, follow me, imitate me, become like me. Walk in the dust of my feet. Drink from the words of my mouth. Practice the way of the king and the kingdom. He's asking them, set down your previous identity as a fisherman. Join me in this kingdom movement. But to do this, right, they're going to have to leave behind well-established patterns of life. To leave behind their area of expertise. In some ways, though, right, they just won the lottery. In some ways, they get to follow a rabbi, which is incredibly prestigious, right? Harvard, PhD, under like the best of the best. And they're getting offered this. But also, he is asking them everything. James and John, they have hired men. Presumably, they have a booming fishing business. They're managers. They're likely, if they follow Jesus, turning their backs on a promising financial future. Prominent social status as really successful businessmen in Capernaum. But not only do they have to leave behind their nets, they also have to leave behind their family. Remember, their dad is there. There's nothing wrong, right, with nets. Certainly nothing wrong with family. 
Nets are essential to fishing, family to life. But even these, Jesus asked them to set down, to follow him. Jesus does promise. He says, I will make you fishers of men. In some way, it seems like he's going to say, he's saying, you will use your expertise in kind of a new way, maybe with words now, with people, not fish and nets. But on another level, I think Jesus is saying that he is going to transform them. The Greek in this line is actually really interesting. It's kind of nuanced. I think a, a good translation is something like this. I will make you become fishers of men. He's going to transform them in the process. Following him, well, yes, yeah, sure. It's going to have continuity with their past, but it's also going to be prof profoundly transformative. They will become new people as they embrace the way of the king. Right? And Peter or Simon and Andrew and James and John, they have this decision to make. Imagine the pressure of this moment. What do you decide? Assumably, Jesus isn't going to sit there all day. Let me check in with a few people. Can I get back to you next week? There's an urgency. There's a pressure. They set down their nets. They set aside their potential earnings financially, their social status, their expertise, their vocational identity. And they say, all right, Jesus, we're in. But I think we need to appreciate here, too, uh, Jesus doesn't call them to meet one-on-one -on -one in a coffee shop. It's kind of our American model of discipleship, right? It's often disconnected from community. Right? The call of the, very, the four fishermen at the very outside of this ministry suggests that for Jesus, forming a fellowship is a key ingredient to following Jesus and being transformed. If you think about it, there is never a moment in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus does ministry outside of a community of disciples. And the community that Jesus forms is not a nameless, faceless group of people you go to church with on Sunday but do not know. Right? We know these people. Simon, Andrew, James, John. In a few chapters, he's literally going to list out the 12. Hey, you know this community. Here are their names right here. I think Mark is trying to tell us, right, that Jesus is the initiator and the center of this new life-encompassing, life-transforming community. It's not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the global church today were planted in the first act of Jesus' ministry on earth, in which he called four people to surrender their lives to the king of the kingdom and live for the next foreseeable future, <laughs> dedicated to that king and that kingdom and that way of life that the king calls us to. The question is, right, you have Jesus teaching about the kingdom, you have this call of the four fishermen, and the question is, right, then how does it relate to us? And there's a lot of ways to apply this, um, and there are simpler ways than the way I'm going to suggest today. 
Um, but I think one of the things we often do in the American church is we disconnect a number of things. And I think there are four things in particular in this passage that we cannot disconnect without somehow messing up the whole design. I think this morning, one of the things Mark is trying to tell us is that you cannot connect, disconnect kingdom, call, community, and mission without really distorting what it looks like to follow Jesus and participate in the kingdom he is calling us to. Right? Clearly, Jesus is announcing God's kingdom. Right? He wants all people to say with him in the Psalms, right? The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Right? He wants us to worship that reign, but he also is recognizing, I think, that there is a king of a community of people that are meant to live a certain way as a way to witness to who God is in the world. Right? He wants that community of people to live on earth as it is in heaven. And he wants that community to grow. In the modern world, too often, I think we reduce the demands of Jesus or the call of Jesus, participation in his kingdom, to like a one-time transaction. You know, when you're 13 at a summer event and you decide, I'm in. Awesome. We should all celebrate and throw a party. But Jesus doesn't say to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, do you believe you are a sinner and believe that I am the only one to offer you forgiveness of sins? He doesn't say that. Is it true? Yes, 100%. Is the theology there true? 100%. Belief is essential. But to be a disciple is to repent and believe and then live with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Jesus, be transformed in a community of Jesus' disciples for a purpose greater than yourself. They all go together. Right? And we see this in Mark, and if you read through the New Testament, you see this in Acts and Paul's letters, right? The gospel, the good news is always God's exaltation of Jesus as the cosmic ruler or king of the kingdom and the establishment of kingdom communities. People who are devoted to the king, which we call churches, who are meant to embody in their everyday life together the gracious rule of God in Christ. Right? And this is deeply connected to Jesus' mission. Right? Jesus doesn't call these four fishermen to experience his love at the expense of loving other people, or instead, of loving other people. Jesus calls these disciples to himself to extend and expand the community participating in the kingdom of God. Right? He wants more and more people, more and more people to do on earth as it is in heaven. Hence, fishers of men. Jesus calls these fishermen and will transform the fishermen in community with himself. And then they, just like Jesus, covered in the dust of his feet, drinking in his words, will call others to submit their lives to God's kingdom. To repent and believe and then live into the way 
of Jesus. Kingdom, call, community, mission. They all go together. Too often, I think, though, we assume we're called once, and then we're good. And it does begin somewhere, but think about it. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, think of how many mornings they woke up with Jesus and had to decide, Jesus is walking off again. Am I going to keep following him? Every morning, there was this literal sense in which Jesus is walking. Here I go again. Each of those mornings, they could have gone back to fishing. They could have gone back to their nets. They could have gone back to their business. They could have gone back to their families. Every morning, they have to re-choose. Am I going to follow in the dust of my rabbi? But I think in our culture, you know, back to FOMO and FOBO, right? Fear of missing out, fear of a better offer. Um, We often live with this cultural perspective where we're afraid of missing out in things going on in our work, on our block, with our friends, online, whatever. I think one of the things that happens in this text is there is this reversal, where I think Mark is trying to get us to feel a little bit anxious. I think Mark is trying to get us to feel a little bit pressured, a little bit of the urgency, where if he's saying, if Jesus showed up to you today, would you follow? Not just when you were 13 at that rally or at church when you were 25, today. Would you live open-handed before Jesus saying, all right, I trust you with my life and my job and my family. I'll be covered in your feet, your dust again today. I will drink from your mouth. You drink the words from your mouth again today. I think we should feel some urgency. We should be a little worried about the fear of missing out on what Jesus is up to, not simply our friends and all the things going on socially. I think Mark wants us to feel some of that urgency. And I want you to consider today If Jesus was to show up, what would you do? Because the truth is, he is here. And the truth is, he is asking you, will you follow me? And this week, I want you to chew on that. If in your mind you're like, yes, I'm in. I want you to explore why. What has Jesus done that makes it so you are like, wherever you go, Jesus, I am with you. If you're like, no, (laughs) why? What are you afraid of? What's under the surface that's keeping you at arm's distance from committing to Jesus and his kingdom? And if you're kind of like, I have no idea, again, why? What is going on in your mind, in your heart that you feel torn? I think these are the kind of questions that Mark is inviting us to wrestle with. He doesn't want us to just think, oh, cool, these fishermen followed him. Yay, you know. I think he wants us to wrestle with, and if he showed up at my work this week, I'm on my keyboard in front of the screen and said, are you with me? Would you go? I think that's the urgent message that Mark is trying to get us to wrestle with. 
Now, as we're called into this kingdom, uh, this assumes community. Right? The Christian life isn't done alone. Again, I said this a second ago, but Jesus didn't call the disciples and say, hey, what it means to participate in the kingdom is to meet with me one-on-one in your little sacred space. Is that a part of it? A hundred percent. Is that all of it? Absolutely not. Does Jesus want to meet with you personally, on your own, on a rock, in your room, in your prayer closet? Yes and amen. But he also wants to form a community of people that practice his way on earth so that the surrounding community is like, wow, that people, that collective, that community, wow, they're devoted to a different king. I think some of us were like, wow, I love Jesus. His people? Eh, not so much. I was totally me. First couple years of following Jesus, 100% me. I remember I was invited to this accountability group one time and never done anything like this, never really been with Christians. And they were like, hey, we're going to meet once a week. And I just told them straight out. I was like, you know, I love Jesus. I don't really like Christians. I know some of you are out there. But this is the thing. Jesus never designed the Christian life to be done as like a simple, simple family unit or as an individual. It is always meant to be grounded in the collective of God's people. Why? He is a king of a kingdom in addition to your heart. And that always the transformation haps, takes place in the context of community with people you don't like. You know the first place you learn to love your enemy? Here. This is where we are transformed. And I guess my question to you is, are you willing to take one step closer to God's people in this place? Not because you like us. Not because you think we're the coolest. But because Jesus has placed you in this body to grow. To witness to his broader kingdom on earth. Are you willing to take one step closer for that reason? And then finally, I just think we can't also then disconnect mission, the outward extension of the kingdom and the call and the community in the world. Right? Jesus, the king, calls us to himself. He gathers us a community, and then he sends us into the world to be a blessing, to embody on earth the kingdom that is in heaven. Right? And this is what Paul talks about. We are ambassadors of a kingdom. Right? And an embassy always has a location, right, from which an ambassador goes. And my conviction is every single person in this room has like an embassy, a station, a place from which God says, work. Everyone has a place and people that we are called to be ambassadors of the king, the kingdom, and a kingdom way of life. And my question to you is, who are those people? What is that place? you know. I think if you don't, this is a perfect place to turn back to the king and say, where have you sent me? Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's someone on your block or in your apartment or in your class at DLI. 
the really irritating person who's unbelievably good at Russian, you know? Love that person. Your place and your people. Jesus is calling us to follow him and participate in his kingdom. He's calling us to do that in community as a part of a mission that is bigger than you and I. He's calling us to be a community that transcends our likes and our dislikes to transform our character so that we are more like Jesus. He wants to form us into a people that is actually a blessing and good news on this earth. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to begin with a song. It's called Build My Life. I just think it's a beautiful place of worship and prayer. Saying, Jesus, build my life according to your kingdom. According to the practices in your kingdom. The way of Jesus that we might embody the goodness of the kingdom on earth. Now I realize I've covered a lot of stuff and, you know, some of it you can probably digest and some of it you can't, but I guess my prayer and invitation as we go into worship is just to allow the Spirit to convict you. Maybe one or two things that I said that were like, yeah, that's me. Holy Spirit, I just invite you as we gather here this morning. Just pray, God, that we would be more like you. You are the king of a kingdom that has a certain way of being. Align our hearts, align our minds, align our actions. That we literally, in this place, embody heaven on earth. That we are ambassadors of a kingdom that is good and beautiful, and a king that is faithful and gracious. God, speak to us. We are a broken people. We are a wayward people. We are a people that often need to repent and turn back and say, wow, did I miss it. Speak to us, Lord. God, we want to be a people who are faithful. And we want to be a people who are a faithful present of your kingdom in this world. Help us to build our life on your love in your way. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Move in us, convict us. May we leave this place different than we came.